Gleason and Farrell revive their mesmerizing interplay surrounded by breathtaking Irish scenery and a brilliant ensemble cast. That's from Richard Roper of the Chicago Sun-Times. It's our feature review this week here in Cinephile, The Banshees of Inner Sharon. One of the best films of the year from the director, Martin McDonough, who, of course, had an Oscar glory with the three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. That film was nominated for Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, etc. And, of course, took home Oscars for Frances McDormand for Actress and Supporting Actor for the great Sam Rockwell. He's back. This is more of a film like In Bruges, a couple of Irish guys going at it. It is fantastic. We'll get into it. Also, saw Raymond and Ray, which is available right now on Apple Plus, just for my guy, Ethan Hawke. Cody saw three quarters of it, so look forward to his review. And one of my favorites from all time. That's right, the old movie this week, The Man Who Wasn't There. One of my favorite movies of the last 20 plus years. Not only will I talk about it, but in case you missed it, Billy Bob Thornton joined us, I think, way back when, 2016, 2017. We'll play a clip of Billy Bob Thornton talking about this film and why it's his favorite performance he's ever given all time. Our wild card, we got Hanks. All right, massive <laughs> news, we got Hanks. Colin Hanks, son of Tom, producer of the new documentary about Willie Mays, Say Hey, and director Nelson George. Still a Hanks, man. Still a Hanks, Still a Hanks. Hanks. 97-minute <laughs> documentary. Uh, it's really well done. If you're a baseball fan and a Willie Mays fan, you'll really enjoy it. But... We got Hanks, Cody. That's the bottom line. We got Hanks. I just ate lunch. How do you feel about the chicken Caesar wrap? Not great. I feel like they put too much dressing on it. Like I, whenever I have, a, I like a Caesar salad, but there's too much dressing. So I like the dressing on the side, and you can kind of dip your fork and do it. So chicken Caesar wrap, it's like, a lot of dressing. I don't like the iceberg lettuce. I don't like my lettuce to be crunchy. You know what I mean? Like I want lettuce to be what it is, soft. Like you know what I mean? Like I don't like like the corner pieces of those icebergs, or it's like a big crunch. Yeah, yeah. I like the leafy parts of the salad more than the crunch. And in the Caesar wrap, you get too many of the crunchy elbow parts of the salad. I don't mind the crunch. I like the aesthetics of it. I like the noise. But to your point, iceberg lettuce, I did once read, it's not good for it. Like, not that it's not good for you, but it's not healthy. Like, it's just basically water. Like, if you want a good lettuce, I think romaine lettuce is the way to go. Working a little purple. Exactly. Mixed yes. greens. Yes. I'm a mixed greens guy. Get that little purple lettuce in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mixed greens is definitely the way to go. Speaking yeah. of greenery, that segue will work perfectly when we get into the Banshees and Inner Sharon. But first, I want to thank everybody who listened to last week. One of the great guests we've had so far under Cinephile Reincarnation 3, Jeremy Strong and James Gray. Both were terrific. Uh, really just... They loved your questions. How about that? Like, it's, yeah. it's, I feel like you shined there just by how much they enjoyed it. It was yeah. like that first question, he's like, hey, the glasses, you haven't been asked that yet. Like that's As an interviewer, is there any better feeling than the two people being interviewed saying, wow, we haven't been asked that yet? That's a great question. No, there's nothing better than a great question. The best used to be Sal Palantone at ESPN. Oftentimes, reporters will send the questions they want the host to ask. So he would send the mm. questions to be asked. I would ask him the question. He'd go, well, that's a great question. And I'm like, that's amazing. <laughs> so he's giving himself props because he came with a question. But publicly, <laughs> he's giving me props because he's saying great questions. So I, I love what he would do that. Like, well, that's a great question. Nar- it's like yeah. a narcissistic way to give a yeah. compliment. He's absolutely like, flopping That's a great job by you. Yeah. Great job by you. Yeah. I'm Sal Pal. <laughs> I used to always love when he would do that. But yeah, I, those guys were great. Mark Simon, my friend who listens to every episode, said he goes, that's a real example of how starting with something specific is helpful. And I said, yeah, I, a few things. One, I believe Whittingham said you guys discussed this on Mystery Crate. Yeah, and, and I said, you know, he's the kind of guy, Jeremy Strong, because he adores Pacino. He adores Dino De Lewis. Actors, actor, thespian. So... I knew, like, he's not just randomly picking any glasses. Like, I was pretty right. sure, like, this guy is a real student of filmmaking. He took it seriously. And I think that's why James Gray, the director, was so happy. Like, hey, he asked with the glasses because he knows Jeremy Strong is the type to pay attention to <laughs> such detail. Jeremy Strong also very good on Mark Maron. They had a good, like, hour, 28-minute podcast. The one disappointment, you know, I read that article, which everyone's read about Jeremy Strong, which paints him as a 
you know, a little bit intense, and I'm sure he had some aversion to it. But in the article, it says he's a quote machine. So that was my only disappointment in talking to him. Like, I, if you listen to with Marin, it's amazing. Like, almost every other answer, he'll quote. Like, oh, that's like what Flaubert once said, or that's how Rodin once said, or that's how Aristotle believed. I'm like, it's amazing. This guy's a quote machine. Did not actually quote with us. But in a way, I'm like, well, I kind of take that, like, I take that for what it was. Like, he was just he answering quote, questions. He didn't really quote with us, but he multiple times, you asked a question, and he goes... Thank you for that. Great question. Now, you give me a name check. That. You give me a name check. So thanks, Adnan. So I'm like, he did. Dude, I love Jeremy Strong. He's great. If you listen to the Mark Marin interview, at the end, Marin goes, we talked for Aaron 50 minutes. He goes, then he called me and left this voice note. And he goes, so take a listen. And the voice note's amazing. He's like, hey, Mark, it's Jeremy. Uh, I just landed in Stockholm. He lives in uh, Denmark. He married a Danish woman. So he goes, hey, I'm just going home because I'm jet lagged like crazy. I just want to say thanks to the interview. And I also want to say a few other things. It's amazing. He just starts talking. He goes, you know, I just want to say, like, ultimately, you know, the article that was written about me and our conversation, like, it really doesn't matter what an actor says. Like, there's so much stuff happening in the world right now. There's a war in Ukraine. Pakistan have these terrible floods because there's issues with you know, inflation, the economy. He's like, well, what does it really matter what an actor says? Like, I, I don't even know, does any of this matter? Does any of these conversations matter? So I just, I, I just wanted to convey that to you, that I enjoyed our time together, but I don't know if... I, I don't think it really matters what an actress is to say, but anything. I think actors are a vessel for actors are a vessel for storytelling. We're here to pass along a message. I think I think actors can be important. I think storytelling is important. I've devoted myself to this craft, but ultimately, my words. I'm not sure what relevance they have. Anyways, thanks again for chatting. No voice you know, note for you after our year. Yeah, that would have been amazing if I got a voice note. But it was a great. I thought it was great that he left a voice note and that Marin played the voice note. Like I don't know if Marin you got permission. Do, but. I actually like your Jeremy Strong impression. Yeah, you should do a fake voice note, record it, and then send it to your friend and be like, "Look, he sent me one too," and it's just you doing Jeremy Strong. It's not a bad idea. You know what? We're kind uh, of on to something. Your, your interview was much yeah. better than the I, Mark Marin interview. I just had to get really deep into the character, and I just I really believe in what I was trying to tell, and uh, I'm. Really I'm really not sure if I'm making sense right now. Like it was You're amazing. It was good at impressions, Adam. I, I You're appreciate sneaky it. good at impressions. Good. Uh, <laughs> Nothing's better than you singing that one song from a few weeks ago. You but... say tomato, <laughs> and I say tomato. By the way, there's a Louis Armstrong documentary. I'll be reviewing it next week. It's called Black and Blues. Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues. I can't wait. I think it's on Apple Plus. I know it just came out streaming this weekend. So expect more Louis Armstrong impressions coming up next week when I talk about that new doc about his life. All right. You want impressions? I'll give you impressions. How about Irish accents? I just saw the Banshees of Inner Sharon. Outstanding, uh, as expected. Martin McDonough made one of the best movies of the last 10 years. Three billboards outside of Emmy, Missouri. I love that movie. As I mentioned, McDormand and Rockwell won Oscars. He makes movies which are really intense and, and feature such great dialogue. He himself is a playwright. So when you're watching the movie, you can often tell the verbal rhythms of it and the cadence. Um, you can see that it could be really influential on stage. But real simple story. Reunion of the two guys from In Bruges. Colin Farrell, they're on an island. This is a made-up island called Inisherin. He goes down to meet his buddy, Brendan Gleeson. He ignores him. Gleeson ignores him. Farrell tries to talk to him later on, ignores him. Goes out, has his pint of beer, goes outside, ignoring him. So Farrell's like, hey, um, I, I don't know if I said something to you. If I, if I said something wrong, I'm sorry. Um, if I did something to you, I'm sorry. Like, you know, when I get drunk, I, I forget these things. So, like, I don't know what's going on here, but, like, just talk to me. Like, I don't know what's going on. And Brendan Gleeson goes, it's nothing you said, it's nothing you did. He's like, okay. He's like, I just, I just don't have anything to do with you. And Farrell's like, what do you mean? Like, like we're friends. Like, I don't get it. He's like, I'm just, I'm tired of you. Like, I just, I don't want to deal with you. I, I'm tired of you. And he's like, what do you mean? What kind of shite is that? Every feckin' time I've been talking to you, every feckin' time, and now you're telling me you don't want to talk to me? And Brendan like, yeah, I'm tired of you. The other day you talked about donkey shite for two hours. I don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> donkey shite. You're going in detail about it. I don't care. I don't want to hear it anymore. 
And Comfort's like, what do you mean? I'm talking to you like we're friends. Every feckin' day I see on this island, and you're telling me this shite? And then they start going in circles back and forth. And goes, just leave me alone. Don't want to have anything to do with you. Why don't you go back to your donkey? I'll go back to my dog. Everything will be fine. Just because you're a, you're a pudgy fellow with a fiddle. You're just a pudgy fellow with a fiddle, and now you've got a problem with me, I reckon. That's not me problem. That's you problem. So, essentially, Gleason's like, leave me alone. But Pharaoh will not leave him alone. This is like one of the great annoying characters of all time. Just keeps coming at him, keeps coming at him. Like, why don't you talk to me? Why aren't you talking to me? And they live on an island, which calls to mind, Cody, top 10 places you would not want to live. I'm putting an island up there. You can't escape. Who the hell wants to live on an island? I talked to the great Neil Everett, who lived in Hawaii for years. And I said, how was it? He goes, how's it? How's it? Exactly. How is it? How's it? (laughs) Market eight, dude. He said that, honestly... Hawaii is incredible. Like, it's heaven. It's paradise. But you do get that island fever. Like, you're landlocked. You can't just get in a car and just start driving. Because you look like you like a good road trip. Like, oh, yeah. I drove to freaking Charleston, South Carolina. I love driving. I go to, I drive to Canada all the time. He's like, yeah. He goes, you can't just get in the car and drive. So the island fever causes an issue. And this is... Bartender Jack. <laughs> More Neil Everett lines. <laughs> well, hang on. I'll take a Neil Everett aside then. Because on Mammoth, when I worked with him at ESPN, I got to fill in for Stan, Stan Verrett for a week, ESPN Los Angeles. I said to him, I go, I'm such a huge fan of yours. I go, I gotta tell you something. He's like, yeah. I go, before I lived in Canada, you know, we did not get sports center, but my brother was living in America. And he once heard you say, he'll take him across the street to Mitch and Murray. And Glenn Gary Glenn Ross is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I go, oh my God, that guy's incredible. My brother was so impressed by it. He sent a, like a note. He's like, what do you mean? I go, I don't know how. I think he went on ESPN.com. It was like, send fan notes or something. I go, this is long before Twitter. And he sent a note. So I want to tell you, me and my brother love that reference. We love Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. Like David Mamet's the best. And Neil kind of had this odd look on his face. He goes, it's funny you mentioned that reference specifically. He goes, because the coordinating producer afterwards said to me, like, what is that? And I go, it's from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, one of the greatest movies of all time. He's like, I never heard of it. He's like, okay, tough luck. You should go watch it. And, yeah. he, and it's, it's also a play. Like, you can go read it if you like. And he was like, yeah, but I don't get it. No one's going to get it. And Neil said to me, it's a very good lesson. He goes, I don't care if you get it. I get it. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like, the other day, I'm here to entertain right. myself. So I don't care if you yeah. don't get it. Like, figure right. it out. I remember yeah. early on, I had a reference, something about like a more shocking ending than, than the ending of The Usual Suspects. And same thing, the coordinating producer goes, why don't you say something like Lost? Because Lost just ended. I go, no. Because they watched Lost. Right. This is just the producer like going through their prism. Yeah, I'm glad you like Lost, but I'm like, I didn't watch Lost. And people will know <laughs> right. what The Usual Suspects is. Like, and if they don't get the reference, that's okay. They'll still keep watching the show. Anyways, yeah. now you got me on my Neil Everett tangent. Back to oh, the movie. I love Neil. I love Neil. He's the best. He's a big, big movie guy, too. Um, we should have him on. He doesn't respond well to text. I've texted him a couple times. Oh, wow. And then I asked somebody, I was a little bit pissed, and he goes, oh, he goes, dude, he only responds like one every three texts. I go, okay. Mm. He sent me a great birthday video. Like, he's, he's good if you really need him, but if you just send a text, like, how's it? He's not going to respond. Anyways, how's Neil it? would like, I know, I'm going to text Neil. He would definitely like this movie because it's very well done. Anyways, Brendan Gleason avoids him. Colin Farrell, it's an island. You can't escape anybody on an island. Just a lot of cows, pig farmers, a lot of greenery. You think of Ireland, you're thinking of this. The only thing I didn't have was any dirty limericks. Other than that, it was exactly what I expect <laughs> Irish accents, green beer, and just a lot of farming. And, and a lot of people say, get out of my fucking way. How many fucking times are I going to tell you that? I don't want to be bothered with you. I told you that before. Get out of my fucking way. Enough with the donkey shite. So they keep going an hour and out, and it starts to get ludicrous. And I don't want to give anything away because I want people to see the film. And I really think it's something special. And as I mentioned, it's going to be nominated. Farrell's going to get nominated for Best Actor. I think Lisa will get nominated for Supporting Actor. I think the film will get nominated for Best Picture. McDonough's going to get nominated for Screenplay and Director. It's that good a movie. Here's a couple of blurbs for you. Tim Roby of Monocle. Colin Farrell is a revelation in this. I think it's probably his best performance ever. Mark Feeney of Boston Globe. Banshees is like a short story trying to be a novel. The extra pages get filled with the postcard views. 
Ultimately, though, it becomes a story about friendship. Why would one guy turn his back on another guy after so many years of being friends? And why is he so staunch on this? The fact that Gleason just won't come around, the fact that Farrell won't let it go. And you start to wonder which of these characters is more insane. The fact that one guy wants to be his friend so badly and won't let it go, or the fact the other guy just won't give him the time of day and will not be his friend. And Gleason's point is like, listen, leave me alone. If you don't leave me alone, I'm going to start causing harm. And that's where the film takes a very violent, very absurdist tour, which I very much deeply enjoyed, which I will not spoil. But it, it definitely went in directions I was not expecting. You know, we watch a lot of movies here on Cinephile, and oftentimes I know where things are going. I did not know where this movie was going. That the best combine could play Martin McDonough at the Banshees of Inner Sharon. It was surprising. It was unpredictable. In many ways, it was tragic. It was dark. And uh, it's definitely a film that I greatly enjoyed watching in theaters. I'm giving it four beliefs. Again, it's fantastic. And you think of Colin Farrell, by the way, a pretty good year from Cody, was in Batman, unrecognizable as the Penguin. Yeah. And now he's in a film like this, heavy Oscar dinner. So I encourage everyone to go check out The Banshees of Inner Sharon. Great title, which is currently in theaters. Next up, Raymond and Ray. On Apple Plus, mm. uh, by the way, Banshee's Been Sharing is like 97% Rotten Tomatoes. People are going nuts for this movie. They do not have quite the same rapturous joy for Raymond and Ray, which I think is at about 47%. I was alerted to it by my cousin because she knows I love Ethan Hawke. So I'm like, all right, well, I'll go check it out. Very aimless, predictable road movie. Kind of tedious at times. Hawk is fantastic. You and McGregor felt miscast. But go ahead, Cody. You- that, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That's my main take from the movie. I was like... Ethan Hawke, I get everything going on here. Yeah. This other character, I'm like, this doesn't fit. This doesn't make sense. I, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. I feel like a good movie guy now. I love it. I had the exact same thought. Well, here's the story. Half-brothers Raymond and Ray reunite when their estranged father dies and discover that his final wish was for them to dig his grave. Together, they process who they become as men, both because of their father and in spite of him. So it's written and directed by Rodrigo Garcia. You've seen many other movies like this before about reconciliation, coming to terms with what's happened. And again, Hawk is brilliant because Ethan Hawk is trading off his persona, which he's done since like reality bites. Handsome guy, strong salad, likes to smoke, tattooed. Girls love him. Like at one point, the girl's like hitting on him and Hugh McGregor's like, it's so easy for you. He's like, like flies on the shit. Nothing I can do. That was like the theme of the entire movie. It's like this guy's resentment towards his dad and his brother of just them getting girls. Yeah, I don't think it was a good character. I thought Hugh McGregor was miscast. I just don't buy him in that role. Again, speaking of Irish or maybe he's Scottish, I'm not even totally sure, but he, he definitely doesn't seem like an all-American guy here wearing plaid shirts who's a half-brother of Ethan Hawke. But again, you've seen better movies with this type of uh, storyline before. It's rather aimless. Uh, but again, I did really like Ethan Hawke. If you're a fan like me and Claire Atkins are, that guy's the best. He, he just kind of takes on these roles with no problem. As a matter of fact, you haven't gotten to it yet. You're probably at the part with the funeral. But the, the last 30 minutes actually gets more interesting because then they kind of go into different directions. You see Ewan McGregor's character where he's going and Hawke's character. And Hawke is like a reformed addict and he's a big... Is there ever any action? Because like at one point he's bringing a gun on the journey. So I remember thinking at the time like, yeah. is this going to like, is the gun going to get used? Like, because like usually if they show a gun, it's going to get used at some point. Like, or was that just spoiler alert the gun does character. get used okay right, we'll give you that there is some action the gun does get used and 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 the part of the story is them going to their dad's funeral yeah. and he was terrible to them beat them not a good father pretty stereotypically a terrible father and but and then one of his things final wish is them to dig his grave yeah just a total dick I, move i just got to tell you if my dad beat me <laughs> Jesus. you can shove that shovel up your ass okay i might attend the funeral 
But like, I'm drawing the line. If this was a rocky relationship, I'm here at least. Like, I'm giving you more than you deserve. Yeah. I'm not like, sorry, there's going to be no grave because I'm not digging that. Snacks on point. Like, first off, as you said, why should I? And secondly, he's never going to know. Right. (laughs) You could say that about them going. That was uh, Ethan Hawke's character was like, hey, I got a news for you. He's not going to know if you don't show up. Like, and the other guy was more emotional about it. Like, no, I want to go. I want to. You know, it was funny to see their juxtaposition, but I'm with you. It was just a slow, like the the hour and twenty that I watched yeah. felt like three hours. Yeah. Like it was just like, where are we going with this? Like, so yeah. a- apparently it was a little interesting, but nothing too great at the I end. I think it's fair to say. I ultimately end up saying to yourself, what is the point of all this? The final twenty minutes, it kind of goes in a different direction. I thought could be more interesting, particularly Hawk's character. He's kind of looking like he's falling in love or not falling in love. He's starting a relationship Does with. Does he end up with that nurse? nurse? I, I, I don't want to. I want you to finish. You got 20 minutes left. You're going to watch okay. it today. You're going to text me after. You already text. I spoil li- bad movies. No, but I, I, I like the fact. But I do like the fact when you're watching a movie, you will text me by letting me know you're watching. I like that's great that you do. You won't say, "Hey, I'm going to get you a line, right? Spit. I You'll sent me a line that way I know you're watching it. It's always so, shitty when I se- I'm like halfway through a movie, I send you a line, and you're like, "Not that great a movie." I'm like, "Damn, yeah." Man, well, <laughs> I'm watching this, but it was a great what you sent me because it might have been the best line of the movie. You said his dick is still bigger than ours. And I go, yeah, it's not that great. Just, you know, that line's great, but the movie is, no. And then I, I don't know what you text me for Sansa the Lambs. I don't know which part it was, but it was definitely something good. I think, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, you, you, just, you just said, don't go, in the, don't go in the cellar. Don't go see Buffalo Bill. So I I'm like, who would go there? Like, this lady's, yeah. like, st- like, trying to find Buffalo Bill. It's like, if I see that creepy cellar, not going. <laughs> don't go. Not going. Don't go in the cellar. Cut from a different cloth, us. How good looking, though, is Ethan Hawke? Like, does your wife think he's handsome? Like, he's... Who wouldn't think he's handsome? I mean, he's just dashing. <laughs> dashing. Especially in this movie. Like, I'm watching. I go, he's just, he's just a charismatic guy. Right? Tattooed, former drug addict, loves jazz. But, like, every girl just <laughs> jumping on this guy. He's a guy. He plays the trumpet. Like, he's, this guy's unbelievable. It, 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 I do relate to that to the character we don't think was a great cast. I can relate to the fact that there are just some guys out there who had it, right? Like, yes. it was just like, you can't, you, it's annoying because, like, you know, some guys have to, like, really work and be witty and charming, and some guys it's just like, yeah. what's up? And they're like, oh, I'm so, like, you know what I mean? Like, I always had one of my friends growing up, not going to name him, dumb as a rock, this guy, but he was, like, 6'4", and women love tall guys, so this guy would, like, clean up, and I was always like, he's not funny, he's not, like... Like, what's this guy have? I mean, I, I'm sure I could guess what he had to offer. Yeah. But I was just, I was, it was, I was always uh, silently resentful of my tall friend who got, uh, hit it off with the ladies. Well, you're speaking the language. Like, neither of us are very tall. And you're right. Girls definitely go for height. Like, height yeah. is a huge advantage. Like, there's guys that look like donkeys. But if they're tall, they're like, well, he's right. got height. I mean, I'm 5'11". Like, I'm above average. You are above but average. I'm, but I'm, but it's not, I don't meet that threshold of, ooh, he's. So he's so tall, he's good looking. Like I have to still be a little funny, yeah, yeah. And you know, like I have to work for it. Like it didn't come easy to me. <laughs> but you Despite did, but you did outkick your coverage. Like everyone agrees. Like when they see your wife, they're like, "Oh, Christine, yes. she's pretty. She's wow." Cody yeah, got hurt. Not a compliment. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I'm trying to turn it so it's a compliment. I mean, I guess it is because of my, you know, charming personality yeah. and my my wit. Yeah, I just always think that must be awkward view that moment. Because I, I did that to a guy one time at a wedding, my buddy Cabby's wedding. I can't remember his name, but his wife was like very attractive. And I was like, that's your wife? <laughs> and he started dying because he could see it. I'd be like, that's your wife? Wow, like, man, you, okay, yeah. are you rich or something? Like, what, are you really funny? Like, what's yeah. going on here? But anyways, Raymond and Ray was not great. That is not a compliment because we're being honest. Ultimately, this film is a two Maple Leaf movie. Here's a couple of reviews for you. Randy Myers of San Jose Mercury News. Raymond and Ray does have its moments, but it seems obsessed with trying to be different when it's basically just warming up leftovers. 
Great blurb. Yeah. Tiber, yes. Tiber's watched this. Garcia, I know how to tickle you. Yeah. Garcia, the son of novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez, has made some good movies. Nine Lives, Albert Knobs, an HBO series in treatment, and some misfires. But this is the first time it feels like he's running on autopilot. Yes. Ooh. And li- autopilot is such a, a mean thing to say. <laughs> just tell us that they're mailing it in, right? You just, like, it's just like... Yeah. There cannot be a worse insult than that. <laughs> and Leah Greenblatt of Entertainment Weekly, a vamping, oddly inert dramedy that never for a moment transcends its paper doll characters and forced quirkiness. That's so true, though. Like, <sighs> it's just never, you're always like, all right, I get this. I get the concept. I get the premise of this. Yeah. Now what? And there's just no, never anything. It's just like, no, we're just going to stay right here. I can't yeah. wait to you watch the final 20 minutes. Let me know what you think. Um, I, I don't want to now. No, no, you don't want to. Is it to. Hank's time? Are we doing Hank's now? Uh, yeah, let's do Hank's first, then we'll do Old Movie on the back end. It's time for Hank's. We got Hank's. Say hey, Willie Mays. Let's go. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Well, if you're a baseball fan, you're going to love this documentary. It's called Say Hey, Willie Mays. November 8th is the air date on HBO, a feature documentary by one of the greatest players of all time, arguably the greatest player of all time. And to talk more about this terrific doc, we have the director, Nelson George, and the producer, Colin Hanks. Gentlemen, first and foremost, congrats on making a really loving and affectionate and terrific tribute. And Nelson, I felt like after watching your doc, it was always laughable that DiMaggio insisted on being introduced as America's greatest living ball player, because even when he was alive, with all respect, everyone knows Willie Mays was better than him. And now Willie at the age of 90 is still trucking. And I love the fact that it's either you or whoever's doing the interview says, hey, Willie, who is the best? Is it Babe Ruth? And, and I kept thinking to myself, after watching this documentary, you know, Babe Ruth never faced black pitching, never yeah. faced black ball players, right? I know he's incredible. His numbers are incredible. But Willie actually was the true five-tool player, as Bob Costas explains. He transcended the sport, did so for a legitimate duration. I think you can make the point, Nelson, this guy is the greatest baseball player of all time. I mean, you look at, I'm the one who asked the question. So, yeah, I was, and, you know, Willie Demures, he's not going to really confront it face to face. But listen, he played in the Negro Leagues. He played in baseball starting in the 50s and the 60s, a golden age of, of, of great players and great teams. He played against Latin ball players, played against all the great best, Koufax, Drysdale, everybody. Uh, and he dominated the 60s. And he was still a good player. Up until probably 71, 72, he has some good numbers. So when you think of his longevity and the variety of things he did, because, you know, we always focus on the home runs. He was a dominant defensive ball player. Great catch, great arm, threw out tons of guys from center field, and he was fun. And I think that's a big part of it. He was fun. He was great to watch. 
Who the hell does the basket catch now? <laughs> yeah, no question, Nelson. And Colin, the, the baseball stuff is terrific. I mean, Vic Wirtz and the catch in the 54 World Series, the origin of the, the basket catch. Uh, I love Barry Bonds. He tells a story about a catch he thinks is even better than the catch that Vic Wirtz has. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think Nelson really sort of hit it on the head. Willie was there at the exact right time and right place, not only within the history of America. Uh, but also in the history of the game of baseball itself. And he really is sort of, in my opinion, the mark. There's before Willie and there's after Willie. And, you know, Barry obviously has a very close connection to Willie, both personal and within just the the history of the game. And the fact that we were able to get, uh, you know, Barry to contribute and to give his time and his voice you know, uh, to a man that he loves dearly, we were just incredibly honored to, to, you know, to, to, to help make that happen. I was a kid watching the baseball game of the week on NBC for that catch. I remembered it from when I was like, I don't know, 13 years old. So when I asked Barry about the catch, I didn't expect him to say I was there at the game. <laughs> and he went into a whole long thing about that catch, which, which we didn't know we were going to get. And it became a centerpiece of the, of the doc. And um, in fact, you know, I'm of the opinion and I go along, you know, obviously I haven't seen every catch Willie Mays made, but um, to me, that catch is better than the catch in the World Series because of the physical, he leaps over Bobby Bonds, crashes into a fence, falls down and holds onto the ball. I mean, it's pretty kind of Superman when you watch the footage. Yeah, and that's why, I mean, there's such great footage you guys have. The archival footage, the music, all of it kind of, you know, put together. Colin, you're obviously a diehard Giants fan. I assume that was your um, association, your impetus behind this project. You want everyone to know Willie Mays is as great as every Giants fan knows he is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, without a doubt. Uh, he was always the GOAT uh, in terms of San Francisco Giants we'd love to make documentaries about. He was number one on the list for sure. And, you know, uh, our, my producing partner and one of the other producers on, on the film, Sean Stewart, he was really the go-to. He, he was the glue that sort of kept the whole thing going. And he just said, we have to do this. We can't stop. We must do it. And we were able to get it. And honestly, you know, part of it is, look, I am a Giants fan. So I know that Willie Mays was on my club. I, I've heard stories for years and years and years about how great Willie Mays was. But to be honest... I'm also of a generation that I was not around when Willie played. And so part of the impetus of us wanting to do this project was to show the younger generations in which I'm still very honored. I can consider myself part of that group, but to show the younger generations just how good Willie Mays was, just how incredible he was. Cause you step outside of, of, of the Bay area and certain boroughs in New York, you don't hear about Willie Mays as much as you hear about Joe DiMaggio and Babe Ruth and all of these great name players. But Willie Mays, like we said, was in the right place at the right time with the right skill set to dominate the game in a way that it, it, it just had never been done before by a single, you know, by a single person. And so we really wanted to do everything we could to really present that case that, yes, Willie Mays is, is, is by and large the greatest baseball player of all time. I would also say that, you know, to, to credit Sean Stewart uh, for one of the key things in the film, he found some guy in a, in a garage in the Bay Area who had tons of <laughs> 16 milli Willie Mays stuff. And so 
this is unusual because if you look at a film that, that sort of takes place in the 50s going forward, there's very little black and white footage in the film. Most of it is color. And the stuff of the Giants, uh, 60s Giants stuff is fantastic. Training camp stuff. So we were able to, to I think that's going to help the new generations uh, embrace the film because they're going to see really not in some black and white footage that looks like from where, but looks very contemporary. It looks sexy, some of the footage. Yeah, really no does. No doubt about it. And and else, it's funny what Colin was mentioning with DiMaggio because, you know, DiMaggio is just a part of, like, pop culture, right? Hemingway wrote about him in The Old Man of the Sea. He was obviously married to Marilyn Monroe, tortured figure, all the rest of it. But Maze is like, you know, I, I thought it was fascinating. I didn't know a whole lot about him as a guy. Didn't smoke, didn't drink, liked to go to the bar, play a little pool. The gamblers looked out for him. Hey, Willie, go home, man. you got a day game tomorrow. Okay, we, we got to put some money on you. So he's he's with the crowd. He's with the Toot Shore type crowd that Joe D was. No, he wasn't was, a Toot Shore guy. He wasn't yeah, a Toot Shore right. guy. Because I think there's a distinction. Yeah. He Because that was a drinking crowd. Right. That was Billy Martin and Whitey and those guys. Uh, Willie was more of an uptown guy. He was looked at, you know, in Harlem. But I will say this, a good story that didn't unfortunately make the film that says a lot about Willie is, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra invited Willie to his, uh, one of his parties in Palm Springs. Have a great time. Then the Jack Daniels comes out. <laughs> Willie's like, time to go. And there's so many stories that we heard uh, throughout about Willie, like, nope. I'm not doing that. Um, I'm not going to go out. I'm in Chicago. Nope. I'm going to be in my hotel room. We have a marathon card game. I'm by Jim Davenport and Tito Fuentes, and we'll all have a big game. But he was not. And I think that's part of the reason he, you know, he's, out, he's the oldest living Hall of Famer. Yeah. And I think it's partly because he, he took care of himself. He said that in 1951, I had a 32-inch waist. In 1973, I had a 32-inch waist. <laughs> <laughs> and I have never had a 32-inch waist, but it's amazing. And if you look at the footage, some of the pictures we have of Willie in the, the locker room, and like, this is 1950s. Guy's got an eight-pack. Yes. <laughs> it's insane. And there's no, there's not Pilates, there's, you know, it's not weight training. He was a, he was a gifted athlete who took care of his instrument and that's a, that's the difference between him and let's say mickey mantle yeah yeah I, I did notice the defined abs and you're right he wasn't carousing like mickey <laughs> it, it's interesting Colin. when you're making a doc you say to yourself all right we don't have to make it a, a hey geography we want to have do i tell the full picture and obviously you have willie's cooperation and by the way he looks great for 90 years of age he's still eloquent he's funny telling stories you can reminisce so the part that i'm like all right where are they going to get to the dark side of willie mays I, I did not see this coming did not see the fact that jackie robinson criticized willie and barry bonds points out unfairly for the felt he felt that willie wasn't doing enough for the civil rights ironic because years later obama gave him the presidential medal of freedom for dedication to this country and says without willie mays a guy like me would not be uh you know would not be the president of the united states maybe talk a little bit about jackie and that relationship you would think two great black stars would be on the same page but jackie and willie were not well look i i may not be the best person to speak on this but but i'm happy to throw my hat in the ring here the thing that we found so fascinating about willie is that he really is truly in the right place at the right time throughout his, the entirety of his career. And although Jackie obviously is known as the player that broke the, 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 the color, color barrier and is known as that historic figure, his number is retired by every single baseball team in the league, you know, and, and rightly so. But what Willie did, he did it differently. He 
fought his battle in his own unique way. You know, we were very fascinated by the fact that not only does Willie come up and play for the New York Giants right at the dawn of television and really starts to get that name recognition very, very early on uh, in his career. I mean, he's a young player when he's playing in New York and then moves with the team to San Francisco and is basically brought up in San Francisco in the cradle of, you know, the West Coast civil rights movement. The fact that he handled things differently I think frustrated a lot of people. It confounded a lot of people, but yet that was the way that he was raised. And it wasn't that he did not make the effort. He made the effort in his own unique way. And the fact that Jackie Robinson of all people would call him out on that is fascinating in and of itself, just because these are two very, very different men who handled things very, very differently. And yet there's a commonality between them. So one of the things that we really wanted to explore was, well, what makes Willie's approach different? And it turns out his approach was his exact same approach to the game. It was you do the best work you possibly can. You show up every single day and you work harder than everybody else does. And if you do that and you show and you lead by example, you might end up leaving an impression on more people than if you have the megaphone and you're screaming at the top of your lungs. So there was just something unique about what Willie experienced coming up, uh, you know, from the South through the Negro leagues, going to New York, going to San Francisco, not being able, being able to uh, allowed to buy a house in Northern California. I mean, that's insane when you think about it. Um, but the way that he held himself and the way that he, he, he carried himself is different. And, and by the way, that's okay. <laughs> that should be expected that not everyone needs to deal with, uh, w- with things in the same manner. And so that, that was just one of the many things about his personal story that we found so interesting because we knew there wasn't any real, uh, 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 you know, skeletons in his closet, so to speak, due to his personality. But there was a specific way that, that Willie dealt with things. And, and at the time, I don't think a lot of people really understood that. And we really wanted to shine a light on that. I think I would say one way to, to understand this is, uh, Willie's a parallel figure to Sammy Davis Jr., Sidney Poitier. These are guys who were breakthrough stars in the early 60s, part of the civil rights movement uh, coming forward. Then Black Power comes in, you know, 68 or so. Sandy Poitier got criticized for being Uncle Tom. Sammy Davis Jr. caught it for for liking Nixon. Uh, Willie, from that period of 68, 72, 73, took a lot of criticism that's why I wanted to have uh, Professor Harry Edwards in. Harry was one of the people who helped organize that Olympic boycott in 68. And yet, Harry, who, who definitely was a strong critic of Willie in that period, he'll go now, well, he wasn't, what, he wasn't what I wanted him to be, but he was the best player ever, and maybe that's enough. And so I think, uh, you know, over time, all these, all these uh, controversies kind of smooth out when it comes to greatness. Mm-hmm. And the reason Willie is still talked about is because he was great. And when you talk to like the Reggie Jacksons, when you talk to some of the other players, one of the things that Willie talked about a lot in the interview is the phrase, take care of. Yeah. He said that the old guys in the Negro Leagues took care of me. Leo DeRocha took care of me. When I got to, to San Francisco, I took care of Orlando Cepeda. I took care of 
uh, Marichal. I took care of Bobby Bonds. And this idea of mentorship, of brotherhood and through baseball and passing along the information and passing along uh, the knowledge, that is a central part, I think, of, of Willie and what we tried to address in the film. And I think that that ties us into Barry Bonds because ultimately Barry Bonds is the ultimate inheritor of this, this sense of mentorship that Willie began back, you know, when he was a 15, 16 year old kid. Um, the, the, the relationship between Willie, Bobby and Barry is such an interesting one. And, you know, in a world where there's a lot of conversation about uh, black men and black and athletes and, and fatherhood, you're seeing you know, this kind of transference of um, knowledge that, that was central to Willie's being. And when, when, you know, when Reggie Jackson goes, hey, you know, Willie Mays is looking for, Where, where's, that, where's that Reggie Jackson? <laughs> you know, that, that, that Willie always did that. He wasn't an upfront guy. Willie Brown, the former mayor of San Francisco, at one point, one of the most powerful men in the state of California, talks about Willie was not a, was a ball player, not a street player. Mm-hmm. He's a guy who built bridges through his, his greatness. And consistent throughout, through, through, through and through. Consistent in every stretch uh, of, of the imagination. Consistent on the field, consistent in the clubhouse. He, the man was, uh, he, he was the greatest of all time. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Reggie Nelson. He's got a terrific, for the real hardcore baseball fans, you know, the criticisms of Willie and his Mets tenure, the Sun game, all that stuff. Really good stuff from Reggie Jackson, which yeah. I did not know about, which people, the baseball fans will appreciate. But yeah. I want to further your point about Barry Bonds, Nelson, because that was my big takeaway. I said, wow, it's a really nice tribute to Willie Mays, and it's a really reimagining of Barry Bonds, a guy who's been vilified by many people within baseball. I came away, if I didn't know anything about Barry Bonds, I'd watch your documentary and go, wow, he's very kind, he's thoughtful, he's gracious, he's earnest, he's intelligent. You're, you're remaking Barry Bonds here for people. Well, you know, it's funny, and, and Colin can speak to this very well. It, you know, he took a long time for him to want to sit in that chair. Um, he, we, if you see the footage, you know, at Willie's 90th birthday, you see him next to Willie when he's cutting the cake. And um, we spoke to him briefly that night. He seemed interested. Cut to a year later, we finally got him. I mean, listen, as you know, his sense of being vilified, you know, and his gun shyness is there. So we made it clear, we, 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 this is another ambush interview. We're talking about your godfather, and we're talking about the legacy of black baseball, and you are a part of that. So this is something you need to be part of. He came to us and he sat in that chair with great humility, great emotion. I mean, he almost cried when he talked about Willie. And I'll tell you something else. So we interviewed him, let's say, I don't know, it's two and a half hours. So maybe the first 90 minutes, we pretty much had what we wanted. He sat in the chair for another hour just talking baseball. Yeah. And, and this guy talked about hitting like nobody's business. So uh, I, I, we don't set out to rehabilitate Barry, but I think that because it's Willie and because of that emotional connection, he just gave it up in a way that I, I don't think he's, he's ever done before. I don't know. I've seen a lot of interviews with him. I've never seen this Barry. The film, in a way, is kind of the black field of dreams, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you right now, a lot of times raw interviews are really kind of hard to sit down and watch. That one was one of the easiest ones I've, I've, ever, I've ever watched because it literally is the end of that is just him talking about hitting and the purity of the game and, 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 and just what you need in order to hit. You know, uh, which which is fascinating. But, you know, the the thing that I was also really struck by, you know, in in the Barry interview, it shows a side of him that he does not show very often, 
we've only really been privy to seeing one facet of Barry Bonds, and that is him with all of the cards as close to the chest as he can because he knows someone is trying to get him to say something or do something or comment on something. And it's stuff that he has said repeatedly that he, 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 he's not, he's not going to go there. And so for us to be able to give him the opportunity to open up and see a little bit more of his personality, I was really struck by how heartfelt he was and how sincere he is. He, he really is a very, very sweet man when, when given the space to be himself. And so that, that was a real treat to be able to, to see and, and as a Giants fan, I'm obviously just geeked beyond belief. Yeah, of course. A couple more here for you, Colin. I wanted to ask you about The Offer, which is just a fantastic show. I loved watching it. Oh, right uh, for on. those who haven't seen it, yeah, behind-the-scenes experience of The Godfather. You played Barry Lapidus. You really played the villain really well in that. Uh, and I just obviously loved the movie and loved all the behind-the-scenes stories. Anything you can tell me about Matthew Good, who I thought was so sensational as Robert Evans. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it, it, if you've seen The Godfather, it's a fun series to watch. And even if you haven't, it's still a, 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 an incredibly enjoyable uh, 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 ride. Matthew Good, who plays uh, uh, Robert Evans, I mean, he was an absolute joy. I had a front row seat every single day I was with him and I felt like I was just, I would have paid money to see him perform like that. He was great. One, uh, one thing I thought that was incredibly unique and I have since stolen from him, which is always a, a, a mark of just how talented the guy is. One day he came, came in and all of a sudden there was just this incredibly strong smell of a very specific kind of cologne. What kind of cologne? I do not know. And I just went, what on earth is that smell? I said, Matthew, are you, are you, are you wearing like an obscene amount of cologne right now? He goes, yes, Colin, I am. It just seems like something that Robert Evans would have done. <laughs> and I went, oh my God, that's brilliant. And since then, I, I have stolen it, and now I, I try and find, you know, era, you know, correct cologne for for, for characters, <laughs> if need be. It's a great, it's a great little actor's trick. I love that. And last one for you, and I'll let you guys go. I just loved uh, the show Fargo. You were in the first season, Gus Grimley, Critics' Choice Television Award nomination, Best Supporting Actor, Primetime Emmy Award nomination as well, Golden Globe nominee. I just, I never could have imagined Fargo would end up being such a good show. Were you as amazed as people like me were that a movie could be so well translated by Noah Hawley and company? Oh, completely. I mean, I remember when they told me that they were going to be making this show and I said, stop, don't. Why? Why, don't, why would you want to do that? That's a horrible idea. But I read the script and it was so well written, even though Gus was only in one scene on like the 40th page. I just went, this is so good. I just got to try and find a way to make some sort of an impression. And so I showed up to the audition I said, listen, I know that you're going for, you know, the Minnesota accent. So I prepared something that's somewhere between Chicago and Canada, eh? But if you give me the job, I promise I'll whittle it down to Minnesota. And I think that, that joke might have gotten me the job. I hope. I hope. I love it. It's a great show. You should check it out. And this documentary is great as well. Say hey. All about Willie Mays, November 8th on HBO. Last one for you, Nelson. Sure. Great music. I love hearing Shotgun. I love hearing the original Say Hey, Willie Mays song. But I think there's a remix at the end. I want to hear more of that song. Is that Chuck D? That's Chuck a remix? Yeah. So I've known Chuck for years back when I was a music critic. And I, I, remember, I mentioned to him he's a huge baseball fan. Chuck, I'm doing a thing. Think you can do a, a song for me? I said, sure. Then I didn't hear from him for almost a year. And then one day this thing pops up in my inbox on Twitter of all places and DM and I'm like, wow. So um, 
he captured the spirit of Willie incredibly. Uh, and throughout the film, we tried to do what I would say, not music videos, but music sequences. So Shotgun is key to setting up Willie. Managed Boy by Muddy Waters sets up the Negro League's Willie. Uh, Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald yeah. set up Harlem. So Harlem. throughout the film, we tried to set up these sequences where the storytelling was driven by the music. And having once we got Chuck, it just it could thread through the entire film. So um, I'm really happy about all, I love all those sequences. Yeah, it's funny, Shotgun and Up in Harlem, both those songs in Malcolm X. And of course, Spike Lee used both those songs to a good effect. I thought you used them to what great effect as well. And- no, Spike, I, did, I, I used it better, man. <laughs> hey man at the exactly. end of the day it's all music telling you how to feel man that's the that's the trick it's all good music oh. telling you how to feel a hundred percent uh say hey if you love willie mays you're gonna watch this documentary if you don't think about willie mays you should watch it he's effervescent he's exuberant and still going great at 90 uh, our thanks to producer colin hanks and director nelson george thank you so much thank you Congrats. thanks a lot fellas. take care all right take it easy all right bye I was like, I wanted to ask a, a Tom Hanks question, but I'm, we'll be the one person who doesn't ask about his famous father. Yeah. I'm like, if you had one, I was like, Cody, if you got a Tom Hanks I was going to, honestly, if, I, if you were going to give me the reins, I was probably going to go Chet Hanks. So it's a good thing we didn't. <laughs> All right, thanks once again to those guys. They were great. Old movie this week. Fired up the DVD, The Man Who Wasn't There, one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. It's right there with Fargo, just ahead of No Country for Old Men. I love this movie. Um, on the DVD, which is one of the reasons why people go, how do you still have a DVD player? Because when you watch things on streaming, you don't get any of the extras, none of the director commentary, trailers, yeah. photographic stills, like all that stuff. If you're a real movie lover, all the geekiness that comes with the movie, you don't get those uh, accoutrements when you're watching it on streaming. So... On the Man Who Wasn't There DVD, you get interviews with the cast. Um, you get Francis McDormand, you get Billy Bob Thornton, and you get James Gandolfini. And Billy Bob Thornton put it great. He said, you know, it's the kind of movie for people who love film noirs, like The Big Sleep or Double Indemnity, except it's got that Coen Brothers quirky sense of humor. That's what this movie is. Here's the story. A laconic, chain-smoking barber blackmails his wife's boss and lover for money to invest in dry cleaning, but the plan goes terribly awry. Billy Bob Thornton plays Ed Crane. Uh, Francis McDormand plays his wife, Doris Crane. The great James Gandolfini. He plays Big Dave Brewster, a role unlike Tony Soprano, but one that really fits uh, with the James Gandolfini persona. Michael Badalucco plays his brother. John Polito, so great. Homicide, Life on the Street as Crosetti, often a staple when it comes to these characters. Before I talk further about it, when we had Billy Bob Thornton on Cinephile, I told him, I go, I think this is your best performance like i think sling blade's your best movie you won an oscar for it i love monsters ball him and halle berry but i said the man was there. i think it's your best performance and to my surprise he agreed he said it's his favorite of his performances take a listen to what he said i mean my dad was like the guy in the man who wasn't there which by the way is my favorite performance i ever did oh it's extraordinary and you know when you're when you're doing these things you, you have to kind of keep your life in it you know it's like i always tell people my method is uh started when i was born you know, if I have a method or a process, it's mm-hmm. like my process was from the time I was born till now. You know, it's not something I concocted. Right. And it's like if an actor's playing a street person, let's say, a homeless guy, and he goes downtown in L.A. and he gets in a cardboard box on Fifth Street and his security guard's right there in the car and, you know, his publicist is on the phone with him and stuff and he spends the night in a cardboard box. <laughs> 
you're still not going to know what it's like to be a homeless guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? If if you know that you're going back to Beverly Hills tomorrow, right. you're not going to know what it's like to be homeless. You know? All right. We'll snip it there, Billy Bob. Love him. Great guy, by the way. Um, so the story is, as I mentioned, it's about blackmail and intrigue. But what really stands out is just how beautifully shot it is. It's shot by Roger Deakins, who's my you know, favorite cinematographer, him and Michael Chapman, 1A, 1B. The weirdest thing happened. I, <laughs> you're the, you've got to be the only person that knows cinematographers. <laughs> That's a personal <laughs> ranking of lists. <laughs> Here's the weirdest thing. When I was watching the movie, it was in color. And then at one point, I want to say like 45 minutes in, it kind of dipped and it went to black and white. So I walked to the movie and I go, well, that's really interesting. They, they made half the movie in color and they went to black and white. And then every review I read of it said it was in black and white. I was c- completely confused. I said, am I having a stroke? Did I dream this? Like, what happened? So I went back and I watched it a second time and the whole thing was in black and white. So I'm still confused. Eventually, I got the DVD. And here's what's so great about it. Roger Deakins, the cinematographer, there's a special interview with him in which they say to him, what was it like shooting on black and white? He's like, oh, I love black and white. I prefer black and white movies. And he starts listing some of his favorite movies in the past and film noirs. He studied. I'm like, okay. And then the guy very smartly says, are you happy that you didn't shoot on black and white film stock? And he's like, yeah, we shot on color stock and then transferred it to the negative. I'm like, oh, so now it makes sense. The movie theater must have screwed up the projections wherever I was watching it, or maybe the, the shipment that got sent. I, to this day, I don't know what happened, but the movie was not That's supposed to be wild. in color. Yeah, Because I'm like, how could it be or, in I color? Mean, it, we kind of have another one of those situations. Was it 700, 1700? Like, did Adnan make a mistake <laughs> yeah, here? Yeah, was exactly. this a real thing? Right. Like- <laughs> so, again, somebody who knows photography will tweet me and message me, but I guess you can shoot something on color stock and then transfer it to black and white, which is what they did, rather than shoot it on pure black and white stock. But anyways, if you're a real nerd for that kind of stuff, you'll love the, the DVD documentary, because they have Roger Deakins talking about the cinematography, the angles, the shadows. I mean, there's like a handful of shots in this movie that are like some of the most beautiful shots I've ever seen. There's a shot of Billy Bob Thornton's silhouette smoking a cigarette. In the back when you see Frances McDormand um, shaving her legs, there's this one great high-angle shot, tons of shadows, Billy Bob's coming out. There's one shot even Deacons mentions. You, they walk into one store, and then there's this, this move where you kind of like rapidly ascend. The camera dollies up, and it goes into a different scene where he's opening up a different door. Just the, the way these guys use different transitions and shots, it's also the kind of movie, because he's chained smoking the whole time either it's a kind of way that makes you want to smoke or makes you never want to smoke again it depends on the mood i'm in because every scene he's smoking i'm like man this guy can smoke let's play bob thornton and at times you're like god this guy's like walking cancer stick but the other time you're like look does look kind of cool the way he smokes and like they make like something about smoking in movies when they blow up that big draft and like it just makes it look so cool so it's just kind of and they like it. take an inhale while they're thinking about yeah. something it's like big thought Big drag, and then that smoke comes up. Um, I think on the movie, Billy Bob said that he actually quit smoking because the smoking was so much. Because they just had him smoking all the time. He's like, after this movie, I quit. But I I still, when he came to visit us at ESPN, I remember I because he's so thin, he's in incredible shape. I go, he must still be smoking. And then one of the people was like, yeah, I think I think he ducks out for smoking. He's got it because he's so skinny. When people quit smoking, they put on weight naturally. This guy's so thin. I'm like, there's no way he's he's still. But whatever, it's uh, tweets his own. Sean Penn's still smoking all the time. (laughs) He didn't get the memo. Like it causes cancer. It's like, I'm good. I'm fine. Still living the good life. Um, I love the film, like I said, because I love film noirs. I love the stuff. Love the trailer. Like, I watched, I watched the movie again, and then I watched the trailer three times. It's just an all-time great trailer. So no matter what, if you don't want to watch the movie, do what Cody's going to do. Just watch the trailer for The Man Who Wasn't There. I'm telling you, on its own merit, it's a great trailer. They put their legs on one leg at a time, just like you and me. And one of the great characters, Tony Shalhoub, who won an Emmy Award for Monk. Of course, he's in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. He shows up halfway through the movie playing Freddie Riedenschneider. After Billy Bob Thornton's character gets in trouble of accused murder. Actually, Francis McDormand's character is accused of murder. He comes 
comes in and he's just this fast talking lawyer straight out of the 1940s and he just eats everything. He shows up. He's like, I'm going to get this covered, my hotel, my food, my pizza, my spaghetti, my flapjacks. And he goes, and you keep your mouth shut. He goes, what's talking out of school? Everything's out of school. Don't say a word. He goes, I'm, a, I'm an attorney. You're a barber. You don't know anything. <laughs> it's this great spiel he gives him. And Billy Bob's character doesn't say a word anyways. Like he just kind of stares at him like, who is this guy? He ends up giving this speech about how nothing you can trust and the more you look, the less you really know and the, the truth principle. It just makes you realize how smart lawyers can be, particularly lawyers in movies can be so smart because everything is a performance, yeah. right? Every lawyer is putting on a show. It's all about theatrics and convincing you their client isn't guilty and all the rest of it. But great soundtrack as well, just beautiful music. Uh, they've got music from Beethoven and I, and I love the actual score as well. Uh, amazing narration by Billy Bob. I just love everything about this movie. So if you haven't seen it, check out The Man Who Wasn't There at the very least. Just go ahead and uh, watch the trailer for me. Three and a half Maple Leafs? Oh, four, four, four Maple Leafs for The Man Who Wasn't There. Okay. I love it. You got me thinking at the beginning talking about all the extras with DVDs. Yeah. This has nothing to do with that, but it just got me thinking of it. Did you ever, have you ever been into like looking up movie mistakes? I used to do this. I haven't done it in years, honestly. Yeah. You take a movie you like and you start watching it and you go down this list and you can like see almost in every scene with some movies, there's something that's like, if you notice here, they have this in their hand, but then 10 seconds later, they don't. Like yeah, things, continuity mistakes. When you're like making that, yeah. movies, there's so many scenes, so there are things that get by the audience that are like technically mistakes. I mean, they'll come up at times. There's one great scene in Goodfellas where Paul Savino's talking, Henry Hill, he has a cigar in his mouth, and that jump cut cigar is gone. So like, you yeah. know, Scorsese's doing it on purpose, but what you're talking about is I don't know if accident. he's doing that on purpose. No, he is, because there's just a jump cut. He's like, whatever, we'll just have a cigar, don't have a cigar. Like, you're right. There's definitely times that continuity, guys holding a briefcase, all of a sudden the briefcase is gone. Like, that definitely happens. But I yeah. don't have a I just, I just, as a kid though, I just remember you, and I hadn't thought about it in 20 years, but just something about with the DVDs and extras, it got me thinking, I used to do that. Like, I, me and my friends, we'd like look up like bedazzled mistakes. And then like, we're watching bedazzled and it's like, oh, he's about to come up. Look, he has that shirt on. Oh, he does. It's like so cool to like, it, it, and then once you see it, you're like, how did I never notice that? Like yeah. the, what it teaches you is that there's a lot of these things in movies that we yeah. just don't even really notice. Cause there's just so much going on. Yeah. I think probably if I love the movie, I don't want to know any of the mistakes. And if I don't like the movie, I probably wouldn't mind knowing. So I think if you yeah. said to me, hey, Hangover 3 has got a bunch of issues. I'm like, oh, let me know because I didn't really care for it. Ooh, that makes me want to do The Godfather. Like your favorite, like your top three movies yeah. of all time. Like let's let's go through those Just get all the continuity of the movie mistakes they messed up. <laughs> you start arguing like, no, that's not a mistake. He meant to do yeah, that. Sometimes, that's, sometimes that's, they that's, meant that's, to do it. I, I definitely think that yeah. happens. But we'll see. Uh, great anyway. title too. The Man Who Wasn't There. What a good title. Uh, make sure you check it out. I don't know where it's streaming, but I have the DVD. Uh, check out the Say Hey documentary from Colin Hanks and Nelson George. And definitely check out in theaters The Banshees of Inner Sharon. And you might want to script Raymond and Ray, although Cody will let you know what the last 20 minutes are about the next time. We should cl- the way, we'll, let's close with The Patient, which you finished watching and I just finished watching. Yes. Thankfully, you didn't spoil that one for me. I, like, I'm good with the quote, but thankfully, you, didn't, you just go, holy cow. And I said, I got to be honest, I thought it was a bit of a slog to get through all 10 episodes, but holy cow, definitely the final 10 minutes. What did you think? The whole time, I'm like, this has to, like, there's only a couple ways this can end. How are they going to make this interesting and something that I'm not expecting? And they kind of did. Yeah. Like, that's, that's all I want to say. I, but it, I was just, I, I agree with you that it was a little slow, but I definitely enjoyed it, though. Yeah. Like, I, I was really into it. I thought that at first, I was like, not sure if I could buy this guy as like some murderer, but yeah. the more the show went on, I was like, okay, this, like, I, I, I definitely liked it. I thought I thought Steve Carell was great. Yeah, Car- Carell's really become an interesting actor. I think he's 60 years old now. I mean, he hits yeah. fame with the 40-year-old version. How old was he, 40? 
probably late 30s. And now, like, he's yeah. the last 10 years, he's kind of gone, yeah, that was 99. So, yeah, he's really gone into like dramatic acting now. So, it's, it's interesting how he's kind of made that, that shift. I don't know what it is. Sometimes these comedians, I don't know if they just want to try something new. They just get tired of being comedians, but they always kind of want to start to show, hey, here's my dramatic side. Jim Carrey did it. Yeah. Mike Myers tried that. Like, it, it works with certain actors, certain actors, it it's, doesn't. But. It makes sense, right? And just like, you know, you want to try new things. Yeah, and he's definitely been doing that. Uh, 40 year old version in 2005. So yeah, I guess he did. He was kind of older when he hit. Like he hit stardom in his 40s, which is interesting. Then he hit comedies for a while, and then obviously has now transferred to Kelly Clarkson. Yeah, still though. I mean, the, I don't think I'll ever top that. <laughs> I, as, as I Google 40 year old version, the first thing that pops up is the wax scene. Like he'll be known for that for decades, which is amazing. Having a hairy chest and being waxed. Nipple fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for checking out Cinephile, Apple Podcast. Subscribe, rate, review. Give us some love. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Next week, who's a Weird Al fan? We're talking the writer and director of the new film Weird, the Al Yankovic story starring Daniel Radcliffe and Evan Rachel Wood. That's next week. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.